Ten seconds, Super. Kiss my hot I want you to hold it between your knees. There's never a cop around when you need one. You got a little pretty mouth, ain't you? Well, do you, Bunk? I'm gonna nail you for picking your feet and putting up This cat chef is a bad mother. Shut your Welcome to Vintage Video's 12 Days of Christmas, where as a special treat this year, we'll be reviewing all of our Patreon poll options for December of 1973, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 50th anniversary of the release of The Sting. On December 25th, 1973, it was written by David S. Ward, directed by George Roy Hill, and released by Universal Pictures. In 1940, David Moore's novel, The Big Con, was published. It detailed the exploits of Depression-era conmen with similar names to Gondorf, Singleton, Twist, and Niles from this film. And some have alleged that the book served as a source material for David Ward's screenplay, but we'll come back to these allegations in a moment. Screenwriter Ward's only previously produced screenplay, Steel Yard Blues, featured a pickpocketing scene, which inspired him to research pickpocketing and the history of con artists, and he credits these seeds with growing into the story of his next script, The Sting. Ward shared his draft with eventual producer and My Bodyguard director, Tony Bill, who loved the story and brought on board husband and wife producing team, Julia and Michael Phillips. Ward wanted to direct and had written the hooker part specifically for Robert Redford, but Redford wasn't willing to attach himself to a first-time writer-director. And I should specify, hooker is his name. Yes. He's not playing a hooker in the film. The script was submitted to studios where script reader Rob Cohen, who later directs A Small Circle of Friends and Fast and the Furious, found it in a slush pile and passed it on to Mike Metavoy with his highest recommendation. Metavoy struck a deal with Universal for the script the same day. George Roy Hill received a draft and threw his own name into the pot to direct. Hill's attachment lured Butch Cassidy collaborator Paul Newman on board. Newman's Gondorf character had to be rewritten to better fit the actor because he was originally intended as a heavyset slob of a man, modeled after Peter Boyle in particular. Somewhere along the line, Lee Van Cleef was also considered for the Gondorf part, but he doesn't fit either of those. Yeah, I was going to say, also, ouch for uh, Peter Boyle. Yeah, we just wanted a big fat slob like you, Pete. After Jack Nicholson turned down Redford's sloppy seconds to board Hal Ashby's last detail, producers circled back to Redford, who was significantly more interested in reteaming with Hill and Newman. Robert Wagner and Warren Beatty were also briefly considered, but the offer was remade to Redford and he officially signed on. Hill wanted Richard Boone from Have Gun Will Travel in the Lonigan role, but when Boone turned it down, Newman persuaded producers to consider in his place Robert Shaw, whom he had met recently in Ireland while shooting the Macintosh Man. Before Shaw, the Lonigan role was considered for Ed Asner, Lawrence Olivier, and Sterling Hayden, who could actually have been great, but yeah. reportedly refused to shave his beard for the part. The role was even flat out offered, at one point, to actor Oliver Reed, who amusingly turned it down before taking over the role 10 years later for The Sting 2. <laughs> That's so weird. I, I, well, I guess at this point in his career, was he still being discriminating? Because, like, why would you turn this down? It's a great script. I think, yeah. It, he was he was kind of on top of the world at the time and doing a lot of, like, really celebrated stuff. And Give it give it ten, not even 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I thought you were going to say Oliver Reed refused to do it because he refused to grow out a mustache. Or he refused to speak in an Irish accent. <laughs> 
Director Hill was binging crime dramas from the 30s to prepare for this because he wanted the film to be a love letter to both the honored profession of 30s confidence men and the lighthearted cinema of the same era. He noticed the cities were always sparsely populated, likely as a result of being shot on backlots before herds of extras were the norm, and planned similarly vacant city streets for his film. Like, it, it definitely gives that effect of, of feeling like it's of the era, but... Yeah. Um... The other thing it does, and I, I looked it up just to see, I was like, it, I thought it might have been a stage play first mm. because, you know, that's another feature of those things as having these kind There's of so flat, few people in flat empty looking sets. Yeah. DP Robert Surtees and costumer Edith Head specifically leaned into browns and maroons for all the colors to emulate the appearance of period photographs. The film also made extensive use of the universal backlot. The finished film proved unexpectedly popular with audiences and became the highest grossing film of 1974 and is still ranked the 21st all-time earner when adjusted for inflation, with $159 million on a budget of $5.5 million. Isn't that crazy? That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that. But unexpectedly popular? Like they didn't think people would like it? They didn't think it was going to do that well. They Mm -hmm. didn't think it would be the top earner of the year. The second consecutive film from Hill, Redford, and Newman to land north of $100 million after Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I think that might be a sign, too, of movies before you could have home entertainment to rewatch something like this in order to be like, oh, okay, now that I know what's going on in this film, I'm gonna go I want to go again. see it again. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. For sure. It landed 10 Oscar nominations for Best Picture, Director, Actor Redford, Original Screenplay, Art Direction, Cinematography, costume design, editing, scoring for adapted song, and best sound. It won seven of the ten, losing only for Redford, cinematography, and sound. Interesting that that used to be a category, adapted score. Mm. What does that even mean? It means that the music is based on existing music, where now we only have an award for original music written for the film. When David Niven was introducing Elizabeth Taylor to present the Best Picture Oscar to The Sting, photographer and gallery owner Robert Opel ran across the stage nude and Niven hit him with a zinger. Fascinating to think that the, probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings. This was the first Universal film to win Best Picture since All Quiet on the Western Front, which was actually six years old back when this film takes place. So that's how long it had been. As I mentioned at the top, parts of the story were clearly cribbed from David Maurer's 1940 novel. For example, the story is centered on actual conmen Fred and Charlie Gondorf, and Maurer sued for plagiarism. Universal settled out of court for three hundred to 350000 which makes it seem like they knew he had a decent case. Mm. The Writers Guild disagreed with the court's ruling, and so Ward's Oscar eligibility was not contested, and his Oscar win was deemed fully legitimate. Later, Fallaway Productions tried to literally follow suit because they owned the rights to Moore's novel and considered The Sting a violation of their contract, but that case was thrown out. Was that done before or after the huge box office numbers? After, obviously. Mm. Um, But the only reason that that case didn't go through is because Moore refused to cooperate with their case. If he had signed on to it with them, they might have actually had something, but... um, he, he didn't want to be a part of it anymore. Mm. He had his settlement and he was yeah, done yeah. with the situation. I got my money out of this. The film's legal troubles didn't end there because Paul Newman, who was not a resident of California, was charged income tax in the state and sued to have it refunded and taxed in his home state of Connecticut. He won that case too. Yeah. I mean, 
right? Right. Don't you get like you get your 1099 or something? And he lives in Connecticut for a reason. There's different taxes there. Ten years later, the original screenwriter, David S. Ward, wrote a sequel starring Jackie Gleason and Mac Davis as the needlessly renamed Fargo Gondorf and Jake Hooker, with Oliver Reed slotted into the Lonigan role, never specifying a first name and having ditched his Irish accent in exchange for Reed's normal speaking voice. Of course. <laughs> the story is beat for beat the first film over again, but we'll discuss the full plot at the end. We start with a fun little retro Universal Pictures logo, the one with a silver sphere in the middle and all the twinkling stars around it. I love this logo. Yeah, it's a good one. It, it's it's so, because it's like, like got reflections and things like yeah. that. Is it actually the old logo or yes. is it a recreation? Of no, a, it's a reuse okay. of the original logo. It reminds me of that silver ball from the Phantasm movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we see one of those Saturday Evening Post-style illustrations, a billing card crediting Paul Newman, Robert Redford, and Robert Shaw. And this is part of why Shaw couldn't be nominated for a supporting actor, because he requested that his name be above the line, so it's technically before the title. So he was considered an actor, not supporting actor, so he couldn't be oh. nominated as supporting cast. Well, that's interesting. Mm. I didn't realize that placement and credits mattered. It has to do with money and awards and Well, I know that, yeah, they, people do contractually ask for different placements of their names, but I, I feel like I recently tried to research, like, what constitutes supporting actor because I've seen some weird nominations yeah. in recent years. A lot of the time people just get nominated for supporting because it's like, we really want you to win, but there's a lot of good actors this year. Yeah. So you're supporting now. Yeah. The pages peel back to reveal more illustrations for the remainder of the titles and then a sort of chapter heading called The Players, with hands holding smiling and frowning masks. This card is followed by a sort of sitcom intro montage of all the actors and characters we will come to know over the course of the story. Paul Newman as Henry Gondorf, Robert Redford as Johnny Hooker, Robert Shaw as Doyle Lonigan, Charles Durning as Lieutenant William Snyder, Ray Walston as J.J. Singleton, Eileen Brennan as Billy, Harold Gould as Kid Twist, John Heffernan as Eddie Niles, Dana Elkar as FBI Agent Polk, Jack Kehoe as Eerie Kid, and Demetra Arliss as Loretta. Then we see a big batch of characters flushing out the rest of the cast, starting with Robert Earl Jones, whose first and middle name are for some reason mashed together into Robert Earl. This list also includes John Quaid from yesterday's Papillon. The story starts on a street corner in Joliet, Illinois, September of 1936. Do you guys recall the last time our film started in Joliet, Illinois? Would that be Blues Brothers? Yeah. That's right. Joliet Jake. The Entertainer, a classic Scott Joplin ragtime piece, plays. The camera follows the legs of a man walking down the street and turning a corner. We see him pass a poster for a double feature of 1930s titles Up the River and Only the Brave. He climbs a flight of stairs in some snappy shoes and ducks into an office. Money is changing hands in a crowded room. The man, Mr. Matola, tries to kiss a secretary and is shaken off. He sits down with Mr. Granger to talk business. Granger is on the phone with Combs at the Chicago office, another branch of whatever organized crime this is. Combs was concerned about the radio silence this morning, and Granger explains that the cops had to shut everything down momentarily because the mayor wanted them to look tough on crime. He does it every year. They're counting the money they've earned in what we will come to know as a gambling business, and Granger says that they've cleared 10 grand this week. Combs is waiting on an official total and isn't impressed with 10,000. We cleared 22 here. Oh, what the hell? You got the whole Chicago South Side. How do you expect to eat lousy spots? I got to compete with that. 
They did 14 grand at Evanston, 16.5, and Gary in 20 and Cicero. Looks like you're bringing up the rear, Granger. Granger hangs up and gives an envelope with their total to Matola. He's ordered to take it directly to Chicago. As soon as Matola is outside, he hears a man shouting after a mugger. The mugger, played by Jack Kehoe, is running with a wallet in his hand, and an older black gentleman, played by Robert Earl Jones, is limping after him. Stop that man! Stop him! Stop him! He's got my wallet! Stop him! Stop that man! He's got all my money! Robert Redford, as Johnny Hooker, also sees the chase and throws a briefcase at the mugger. The mugger drops the wallet, and Hooker kicks it away. The mugger runs off, and they return the wallet to the older guy. As he flips through it to count the cash, they can see he has thousands. He says if he doesn't deliver it to 1811 Mason by 4 o'clock, they'll kill him. He offers a hundred bucks payment if either of these men will take the cash where it's going for him because he's been stabbed in the leg and he can't make the trip. Hooker thinks it's a trap and this guy is trying to lead him into another mugging, but Matola is still eyeballing the fat wallet. The old man offers Matola the job. Hey, what makes you think you can trust him? He didn't do shit. Hey, butt out, chicken liver. I gave him back the wallet, didn't I? Matola takes the $100 payment and the $5,000 wallet and promises to deliver the money. Hooker is still sure this man will get mugged for the cash and suggests wrapping it in a handkerchief. To illustrate, he asks for the cash and anything else the man is carrying. Stupidly, Matola hands over all the money from upstairs as well. Hooker wraps the winnings in a handkerchief and tucks it into his pants to show how hidden it is. Ain't a tough guy in the world that's gonna frisky there. He pulls out the handkerchief bundle and hands it to Matola, who dives into a cab. To make it clear he doesn't intend to follow through on his promise, he decides where he's going based on which way Mason isn't. <laughs> where to? Which way is Mason? 20 blocks south. Okay, go north. Joliet Station. Fast. Right. If it had been the other way, would you go to a different station? You're just specifically trying to take it as far away from where he wanted it as possible? Yeah, I mean, I guess there was no other way, real way for him to convey to the audience that right. he wasn't going yeah. to do this. It just seemed weird that he had to ask that first. They could have mentioned which way Mason was earlier, and then mm -hmm. he tells the taxi the opposite way. He thinks he scored an easy five grand, but when he opens the handkerchief in his lap, it's overflowing with napkins. We cut back to Hooker and the older guy, Luther, running full speed back to their home base. When he tucked the wallet into his pants, Hooker obviously swapped it with a dummy wallet. They're already celebrating their score when they see that Matola was carrying over 10,000, and they are shocked. I assume they targeted this office on purpose, but apparently they just lucked out. Yep. We watch through the window of a dress shop as Hooker buys a nice pinstripe suit, and then we see him strutting through town with a bouquet of roses and a bottle of champagne. He says hello to the ticket taker at a local burlesque show, and he walks around the back to come in the rear entrance. Get your minds out of the gutter. <laughs> he strolls along stage right, and he's told that his girlfriend is dancing now. He stupidly thinks that he'll have a chat while she's performing, but she makes him wait till the show's over. Well, she's got to go back on. Like, she, 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 she looks like she was about to finish. She's doing but some she encores, does, yeah. but it's like, still, let her get totally off stage. Let the music stop before you start talking to her. She's annoyed that there are so few men in the audience tonight. He offers to take her on a date, but she needs the five bucks from her next show, and he promises to spend 50 on her. A comedian takes her place on stage, and Hooker and his girl head out to a local gambling spot. Hooker puts 3000 on red at the roulette table, and the dealer is hesitant to take the bet because he knows his boss will force him to win the money, and Hooker is a friend. 22 black. Tough luck, kid. The same number, black 22, is a lucky square in Casablanca, and Bogart's Rick Blaine offers the tip up to a couple gamblers over the course of the film. Have you tried 22 tonight? I said 22. Marquons les jeux, mesdames et messieurs. Les jeux sont faits. La partie continue. Marquons les jeux. Fini. 
After Casablanca and this film, it has become a trope for characters to win or lose fortunes thanks to Black 22. It happens in Lost in America when Julie Haggerty loses their life savings on 22. How down are you? Down, How much down. have you lost? Everything. What does that mean? Everything. No, what do you mean? Everything you on mean? 22 and make it happen for me. Empire Records. 22. And the first episode of Archer. Come on, 22 Black. 22 Black. 22 Black. Ass. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Not you, giant African man. I'm, I'm sorry. Can I offer you a drink? How about this expensive prostitute? <laughs> <laughs> But what if he had bet to put it on black? Then the guy wouldn't have told him to push the button. <laughs> it's just rigged to be 22 black specifically. Right. But but if he put three grand on black and the guy said, take the bet, and it rolled around and landed, then but then you really are leaving it up to chance. Yeah, exactly. Okay. The, the, they, they were in a lucky situation because he said red. There's, mm. Maybe there's a button for 21 red also. And it's like... <laughs> Depending on whether we want this person to lose or not, mm-hmm. we push one of these two buttons. And Grandpa Simpson says, put it all on 39. I got a feeling about that number. Board only goes up to 36, sir. Put it all on 36. I got a feeling about that number. <laughs> His girlfriend is furious to see him toss 3,000 to the wind so carelessly. And when they part ways, he tosses the champagne in a trash can. 3,000, by the way, is 66,000 today. Yeah, exactly. Like there's, there's, A lot it's, of fucking money. It's a depression. And there's like literally we have people sitting on the yeah. streets and yeah, that was like, like that's a, that's quite a move. Yeah. He's make. going past a stoop when he drops the champagne in the trash. And I really wanted all these people yeah. to rush up and dig through the trash for it. We see a car park near a loading dock. A man steps out and takes a freight elevator to an office on the top floor. The man is here to report to Combs in the Chicago office that Matola lost 11 grand to a couple con artists today and the money is gone. That 11000 by the way, is 243000 today. That's what they just stumbled upon by accident. Combs puts in a call to the Big Mick to determine their next move. I'm allowed to use that word. We cut to a classy gambling hall in Chicago, and the camera follows a man to a lone gambler at a distant table. The man delivers a message to the lone gambler's assistant, Floyd, who passes it on to him. At the table, the Big Mick is actually Doyle Lonigan, played by Robert Shaw. At first, he verifies the bagman didn't just pocket the cash and then suggests striking back at the con artists to make an example. You've got to discourage this kind of thing. You follow. You follow. That's his catchphrase. He says you follow a lot. We wipe out of the scene to Hooker standing in a hotel hallway and then knocking on the number 34. This is Luther's place, and the family are excited to see him. In the background, we see Luther and Erie Kid sitting at a table together waiting to split the score. Luther's family leave him with his buddies, and Eerie Kid says that he tracked the bagman to verify he wasn't going to deliver the money like they asked. Luther asks how much Hooker has spent from his share already, and he admits he lost it all. Luther is furious with him for wasting his talent and failing to provide for himself in the long run. Luther is retiring from a life of crime to work with his brother in Kansas City. He suggests Hooker set his sights on the big con and get out of small-time swindling. To give him a leg up on bigger scores, Luther gives Hooker the name of an expert con artist, Henry Gondorf. And can I just say, I fucking hate this name for the character. <laughs> <laughs> Call him literally anything, but not Gondorf. Also would have saved you $300,000 to name him something else. Yeah. I'm just picturing a fucking wizard walking around on his <laughs> knees the whole time. <laughs> the beacons are lit. Gondorf calls for aid. <laughs> 
Hooker is not cool with Luther's retirement, but he's officially out. You're not talking him out of this. Later, as Hooker and Erie Kid walk home, the sidewalk is suddenly blocked by a police car, and Charles Durning, as Snyder, jumps out to arrest them. Snyder informs Hooker that he mugged a big fish today, and he's blown it. If he hadn't been a numbers runner for Doyle Lonigan, it would have been perfect. You're crazy. Snyder has done the math and assumes that Hooker wound up with at least 3,000 of the pot. He claims he only made one, and as he tries to count out the cash, Snyder swipes it out of his hands. Unclear why he doesn't bother to collect another third of the cash from Erie Kid, he just says he'll bill him. Erie asks Hooker why he lied about spending his third already, and he explains that he just gave Snyder fake money, and it will only buy them a little time. It suddenly occurs to him that Luther will be on their short list of targets, and he races to the nearest payphone. Well, uh, I also like that, like, he's like, they, they start walking casually. As soon as Snyder turns the corner, he just he's running full speed, yeah. booking it. He yanks a woman out of the phone booth to call Luther. When no one answers the phone at Luther's place, Hooker races there on foot. Inside, he sees a table tipped against the window, and leaning out the window, he spots Luther face down in the alley below. Erie catches up with Hooker here and urges him to leave before they're all three caught in the act. Another illustrated title card announces Chapter 2, The Setup. The page peels back, and we see a matte painting of Chicago over the famous merry-go-round on Santa Monica Pier, which is apparently called the Loof Hippodrome. Did you know that? I did not. The Loof Hippodrome. It was built in 1916, so it already would have been 20 years old by the time this film takes place. But we're not supposed to be in Santa Monica. This is still supposed to be right. the greater Chicago area. Right, Juliet's close to Chicago. I have yeah. no idea. Hooker walks around outside with an address in his hands and calls to a woman sweeping the steps. He says he's looking for Henry Gondorf, and when the woman finally turns around, we see this is Eileen Brennan. Luther Coleman sent me. Are you Hooker? Yeah. Why didn't you say so? She leads him into an apartment in the back room where Gondorf is found snoring on the floor between the bed and the wall. A full 26 minutes into the movie. The great Henry Gondorf. He drags the day-drunk man into a bath and showers him sober. Glad to meet you, kid. You're a real horse's ass. Luther said I could learn something from you. I already know how to drink. Presumably he's drinking because he's sad about Luther's death. Yeah. Hooker says Luther called him a big timer and he wants to know why he got out of the business. Gondorf says he knocked over a senator and got caught. He spent all the time since evading federal prosecution. Gondorf asks if Lonigan might have followed him here too, and he suspects not. We watch Gondorf chipping a block of ice into pieces in a sink and then bury his face in it, a move Newman also performs in 1966 Harper. Uh, there's a dubbed line in this in this yeah. scene where uh, uh, Gondorf says something along the lines of, Luther didn't tell me you had a mouth on you, and Robert Redford says, uh, Luther didn't tell me you were a screw-up. But yeah. if you look at Robert Redford's mouth, Does he say fuck up? clearly he says fuck up. Oh, that's awesome. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone submerge their face in a sink full of ice? Oh, was it Mommy Dearest? It was Mommy <laughs> Dearest. That was quick on the draw for that one. Lonigan learns from his right-hand man, Floyd, that one of the men responsible for the swindle has been killed and that Combs put his best man, Riley, and Cole on the case. Lonigan tells Floyd to stay on it because if they can't squash a small-time crook like Hooker, they'll start getting hit by everyone. Back at the merry-go-round, Billy, the Eileen Brennan character, shouts down to Gondorf and asks him to open the place early because customers are already waiting. She also asks him to look at one of the horses, nicknamed Man of War, because a kid fell off it the other day. Man of War was an actual famous racehorse at the time. 
Hooker begs Gondorf for crime lessons because he needs revenge for Luther's death. Gondorf explains to Hooker exactly how untouchable Lonigan is. I'll get him anyway. Why? Because I don't know enough about killing to kill him. The scenes of this merry-go-round are occasionally punctuated with the sound of the L train, but it's distracting because I know this is Santa Monica. I've ridden these horses. Gondorf starts laying out all the precautions Hooker would have to take, and it takes Hooker a second to catch on that this is Gondorf agreeing to the plan. When they take the money back, Lonigan will do everything in his power to come after them, so either he can't know they took it, or he has to think there's no one to come after. Hooker seems to have a plan in mind that would require many participants, and Gondorf assures him that Luther had enough friends to scrounge together at least 200 to 300 players. We get more ragtime tunes over a makeover montage of Hooker being treated to a haircut and manicure. He's fitted for a nice suit and gets a new apartment. The men connect with J.J. Singleton, as played by Ray Walston, to put a plan together. Everywhere Gondorf goes, he enlists allies with a simple touch of his nose. Everyone seems eager to jump on board whatever plan he's cooking up. One man even seems to flat out quit his job at a bank to join them. Yeah, that was, that was great. <laughs> um, I was watching this with uh, with my niece and my dad. Yeah. And, and she looked over and was like, did that guy just quit his job? Yeah. It's like, yep. Yeah, that's uh, John Heffernan as, as Eddie Niles, the banker. And he just walks up to his manager and he's like, I'm going with this guy. See ya. <laughs> I feel like the nose touching thing is yeah. like really not subtle. <laughs> mm. I don't know if it's supposed to be subtle. I think it's just like, a, here's a call sign. I'm communicating a lot with this. As Hooker leaves his new apartment one day, he closes the door on a piece of paper so he can tell if anyone's been inside while he was gone. At first, I thought it seemed like a strange choice to put the paper on the outside where his tail would clearly see it and replace it if needed. But I guess he was mostly wanting a warning if someone was inside his apartment, mm -hmm. which they wouldn't be able to replicate from the other side of the door. Yeah. We see Billy serving a tray of drinks to the new team. Ray Walston, as JJ is here, as is a fancy gentleman with a handlebar mustache we'll come to know as Kid Twist and the banker, Eddie Niles. Niles seems to know where Lonigan keeps all his money and that he came from Five Points, but lies that he's from Forest Hills to seem upper class. The origins of the Five Points neighborhood of New York are thoroughly explored in Scorsese's 2002 film, Gangs of New York. Hooker is handed photographs of Riley and Cole and told these are the men who killed Luther. Lonigan is smart with the stock market and his MO is to find a numbers office and then kill the people in charge to take it over. He's done it four times now. Twist suspects there's no way he's not still after Hooker. He kills for pride. Billy heads back down to the bar for five more schlitzes, and on the way, she knocks on a door and says, Time, as a shorthand <laughs> indicator that she is a madam of a brothel here. Schlitz was the number one beer of the 1930s, and my maternal grandfather was a member of the Elks Club, and one of the only things I have of his is a silver Schlitz stein with his name engraved, and on the bottom, it says, When you're at a Schlitz, you're at a beer which I think was their slogan at the time. The only other thing I have from him is a mug from his office desk that just says, excuse me, you're drinking paper clips, <laughs> which I thought was funny. In the bar, Billy is intercepted by Charles Durning as Lieutenant Snyder from Bunko Division. She sees from the badge that he's out of his jurisdiction and assures him that Hooker is nowhere to be found here. All right, if I look around in here? No, but you're welcome to a free beer before you go. He dumps it over her hand before he turns around. I don't really need your permission. Yeah, what a weird, I guess, I, I, I could easily see, like, it's like we want him to throw it in her face or something. Like, yeah. I think Brennan's like, no, he's not doing that. <laughs> Evidently, this was not planned, and Durning did not intend to pour the beer over her hand, but they both stayed in character, and it fits the scene okay. 
The only reason I believe this bit of trivia is because the camera is not focused on her hand, so she has to raise it into the shot to show what just happened. JJ looks through his notes on Lonigan and seems annoyed because the man is without vice. He doesn't smoke, drink, or flirt, and he barely gambles. He never takes a chance, so the only games he plays are the ones rigged in his favor. Did he do anything where he's not alone? Just poker. And he cheats. Pretty good at it, too. This is good. Gondorf can use this. He plays in a $100 minimum game on a train ride. Back at the bar, Snyder asks where the rooms are, and Billy warns him not to go busting into the doors down the hall. What are you going to do? Call the cops? I don't have to. You'll be busting in on the chief of police just up the hall. It reminded me of Ragtime when Henry Thaw is threatening to turn in Stanford White for an illegal gathering before White points out Police Commissioner Rhinelander Waldo is already here in attendance. She returns to the meeting room with five more Schlitzes and warns them that Snyder is downstairs. It sounds like she also communicates that he's investigating a counterfeit cash crime and suspects that Hooker is the target. Gondorf pitches a wire job for Lonigan, and everybody thinks it's outdated. I've known a poker player yet, didn't want to beat the pony. The wire's been out of date for 10 years. That's why he won't know it. I'm not sure I know it. Gondorf suggests Hooker as his partner on the inside of the scheme, and nobody objects. Just before the meeting breaks up, Gondorf asks if anyone here's been spending counterfeit cash, and Hooker looks around the table as suspiciously as he can. <laughs> we get another title card for The Hook. Some of the men helping to organize this game descend a flight of stairs into an abandoned billiards hall. Kid Twist thinks the building will suit their needs nicely and makes an offer. He also pays in advance for an apartment outside overlooking the entrance. Another man walks the floor with them and prices out all the equipment they're asking for. When it comes to the price, percentage, or flat rate, it depends on who they're scamming. Who's to mark? Doyle Lonigan. Flat rate. We cut to a train station where Gondorf and Hooker spot Shaw as Lonigan limping through the building. Evidently, Robert Shaw slipped on a wet handball court and tore all the ligaments in his knee just prior to shooting. Ugh. So this limp is real. He's wearing a brace under his pants. I mean, pants. it's good character training. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. He's not as tough as he thinks. Neither are we. The men board the train behind Lonigan, and Gondorf bribes the conductor for a chair in the card game tonight. Kid Twist steps into a crowded bar to speak with the proprietor. He seems to know everyone the whole way through the place, and in the back room, he mentions the office space they just bought. He needs men to help run a wire store, and he is assured that there are plenty of men here up to the task. A wire store or wire shop being a place that takes horse race bets remotely from a racetrack. They're still talking business in the back when the place goes quiet. The men all recognize Snyder coming down the steps inside. The man outside the owner's office taps a special knock on the door to indicate trouble. The proprietor slides open a peephole to identify Snyder. Snyder spots Eerie Kid sitting at a table and harasses him. He asks where he might find Hooker, and Eerie jokes that he's going to detective school, so he gets his nose broken over the table. Kid Twist is fed a list of maybe 30 guys he can use to staff up the wire shop. He mentions that it's in Stenner's old billiards place, so they know where to go. The men tell Twist not to fuck it up or the feds will be after them, and Twist says there could be much worse people than the feds after them. I don't know who that could be. Fed seems like the top of the line. Well, I mean, I guess you don't want Lonigan's right. men after you either. Yeah. Those guys will kill you. So will the feds, though. Maybe. I don't know. JJ pops into Gondorf's room and asks if he's playing poker tonight. He says he slipped the caducer a C note. The only <laughs> reference I could find to a caducer as a nickname for conductor was in an old Secret Service handbook of underworld code words. <laughs> I, I heard that, and I was like, 
I, I, I was like, I just, I just thought it was like baby 30s slang. Yeah. I thought it was like, is that like something about a caboose, caducer? Like you're switching the D to a B or the B to a D, but no, it actually means conductor. And that was a word that crimey people used to describe a conductor back in the day. JJ slips Gondorf a pair of decks of cards, which are Lonigan's usual brands. As Lonigan is led to his poker game, he bumps into Billy in the aisle and she lifts his wallet before handing it off to Hooker. Turns out the wallet had like $15,000 to $20,000 in it, and they could just leave right now, and it would be awesome. Hooker gives the cash to Gondorf, and we see him do a bit of close-up magic with it. By which I mean it's all shot in an insert, and the hands are not what I would call Newman's own. (laughs) (laughs) There's a quick camera cut between the actual card shark and Gondorf's hands, so that the camera can tilt up and imply that Newman did all of it himself. (laughs) In reality, the card tricks are the work of technical advisor John Skarn. Hooker watches as Gondorf pulls off a few more tricks, and then when he tries to shuffle the deck one-handed, he shoots it all over the table. The cards. (laughs) 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 Hooker is worried by the demonstration. The conductor tells Lonigan about the extra player tonight and vouches for the man. I don't know why he vouches for the guy. It's like, the guy had a hundred bucks, so he's definitely not going to embarrass me. I guess guess if he does, he can just say hey you really embarrassed me give me another hundred bucks but he didn't do that before gondorf leaves for the game he dumps a half bottle of gin down the sink so he can water it down gin doesn't have a smell so he can pretend to be drunker than he is always drink gin with a mark kid he can't tell if you cut it gondorf barely arrives before the game has begun he clumsily kicks in the door to the room <laughs> sorry i'm late guys i was taking a crap <laughs> this is the greatest line the name's shaw I wonder if they decided the name on set to get a reaction from actor Robert Shaw. Like, <laughs> I was just trying to take a crap. My name's that guy's name. <laughs> I was like, this is my impression of Robert Shaw. Here we go. Check it out. I'm taking a crap. I'm Robert Shaw. <laughs> Robert Shaw is just staring dead-eyed at the conductor who invited this asshole to his card game. He's just like, what the fuck is this? This is the guy you just vouched for? The caducer introduces everyone around the table. The fake character of Shaw, played by Gondorf, played by Newman, buys into the game for $5,000. The whole time, Lonigan is looking for reasons to eject him from the room. Mr. Shaw, we usually require a tie at this table. If you don't have one, we can get you one. Hey, that'd be real nice of you, Mr. Lonigan. Lonigan. Back at the former billiard hall, the place is quickly being transformed into a wire shop, like the one we saw in Little Miss Marker last season. The chalkboards, the coat of paint, the windowed offices in the back, as the poker game is underway, Gondorf catches wind of Lonigan's henchman checking his cards over his shoulder. This henchman has the squarest face. Yeah. He's like a Minecraft character skin. Oh my God, he's <laughs> totally Steve. Yeah, it's just like, how is his face so perfectly square? I don't know, but it makes sense that he played these characters. The pot grows quickly as Lonigan and Gondorf raise back and forth. Lonigan throws down two pair jacks high and Gondorf beats him with three tens. Tough luck, Ron Ann. But that's what you get for playing with your head up your ass. <laughs> a couple more like that, we can all go to bed early. When he goes to take a celebratory swig of his gin, Lonigan lunges over the table to grab it and correct his drunken mispronunciation of his name. Name's Lonigan. Dial Lonigan. You're gonna remember that, Mr. Shaw. You're gonna get yourself another game. Back at the wire shop, a machine is installed that will receive transmissions from the racetrack as quickly as any other outlet. People keep popping into Twist's office to pitch themselves as participants in the scheme. 
eerie kid shows up with his nose still bloodied, and Twist gives him a job, even though Snyder would recognize him immediately in here. You got Moxie, Erie. Get yourself a suit. Back at the poker game, Gondorf is faking a sneeze and blowing his nose in the loner tie that Lonigan forced him to wear. Yeah, I, I was like, oh man, I really hope this is Lonigan's tie. It's perfect. Gondorf takes out a couple other men at the table with a flush of hearts. Lonigan suggests a five-minute break, and while he's away from the table, he demands a fixed deck of threes and nines. He wants to embarrass Shaw, or Gondorf, or whoever. It's really annoying, actually, but they named the character after the other actor in this scene. When we cut back to Lonigan and Gondorf playing, Gondorf sees he's been dealt triple threes and raises the pot repeatedly with Lonigan. The plan was obviously to give him four of a kind so that he would spend all his money raising and still lose, because when we see Lonigan's hand, it starts with four nines. We see Gondorf try to nonchalantly light a cigar while continuously raising as if to bluff his hand. Once Lonigan has gone all in, he turns to Clements, the caducer, to ask for 10,000 more to play with. The men who have already lost sit back down at the table so as not to miss the insanity now unfolding. This is also important for the plan because right. had these guys left and if it was just Lonigan... It wouldn't have been embarrassing enough. Yeah. Gondorf plays his cards close to the vest literally and matches all the money on the table. Lonigan lays out his four of a kind and waits for Gondorf's face to crack, but it doesn't. Four nine. Four jacks. Gondorf is very lucky they didn't both have four jacks <laughs> or there'd be some splaining to do. Nobody in the room can believe it and the camera zooms in tight to the cards to prove to us what just happened. Gondorf knew that he was going to cheat this last hand and swapped out cards from the extra decks to cheat the cheater. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Lonigan is even more furious because he just cheated and he still lost. He knows for a fact that Gondorf is cheating too, but he can't call him out in front of everyone without revealing that he knew what Gondorf was dealt. Instead, he just glares angrily at the man. When he reaches into his coat to cough up Gondorf's winnings, the wallet is not there because they've already taken it off him, and Gondorf makes it look like he's trying to welch. Gondorf says he's going to send a kid by Lonigan's room later, and if he doesn't have the money, then everyone in Chicago will know that Lonigan is no Lannister. He doesn't pay his debts. <laughs> In his private compartment, he tells Hooker that he's on, but he warns him to be careful because Lonigan is insanely furious. Alone in his room, Lonigan's assistant Floyd insists he gave the man threes, not jacks. We can't let him get away with it. What was I supposed to do? Call him for cheating better than me in front of the others? When Hooker arrives to collect the winnings, he freely admits to Lonigan that his boss Shaw is a cheat. When Lonigan asks why he should pay anything for losing to a cheater, Hooker says he doesn't have the money to pay in the first place because Shaw stole it already and was playing with it tonight. Lonigan tackles Hooker against the wall and tells Floyd to shoot him in the luggage compartment, but they're almost to the station, and Hooker points out the obvious that killing him instead of paying the money would look very bad. It's like, shoot him in the luggage compartment. It's like, yeah. where, where's this luggage compartment? <laughs> is, that, is that the knees? Shoot him in the knees? Is that the luggage? Oh, do you mean... Okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. Got it. <laughs> Where his bags are packed, right? <laughs> his butthole. It's already a hole. Super convenient. What do you think Shaw would do to me if he knew I was telling you this? This is the baited hook from our most recent title card. The guy is mad, and he wants to get even, so Hooker poses as a willing double-crosser to help facilitate vengeance together. Hooker offers a partnership with Lonigan to take down Shaw so that Hooker can take over Shaw's operation. In the early morning, we see the men walking out of LaSalle Street Station, and it looks a lot like the area we saw Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters dancing around in at the end of Pennies from Heaven. 
Lonigan makes Hooker ride home with him and explain the whole plan. He tells them about Shaw's wire shop and a trick to bet on winners before they're officially announced. He's been planning a scam for two years to bring it down, and all he needs is a respectable businessman to place a bet on a horse. It doesn't even have to be Lonigan's own money. I'll supply the money, I'll supply the information. What about the money you come to collect? Isn't he gonna miss it? I tell him you paid it. I keep his books, he trusts me. If you help me out, I'll pay you back the money he stole out of my own pocket. Hooker is going by the name Kelly now, and Lonigan asks where he's from. He says that he's from Five Points, so that Lonigan will relate to him even more. Fortunately, he doesn't launch into any Five Points trivia. <laughs> oh yeah? What are the Five Points? Which way do they point? Kelly gives Lonigan the address of a drugstore to meet at tomorrow to lay out the entire plan in detail, like he was supposed to do right now in the car. When Hooker reaches his front door later, the folded paper that he closed it on is on the ground, and he spins to run away. Immediately, two armed men are firing at him, but he gets out to the street and around a corner ahead of them. While they continue searching, he jumps onto the side of a street sweeper and rides it to safety. Yeah, I like, I like that bit. It looks more like a street Zamboni than a, than a street sweeper to me. So I feel like this is the only thing that, that bothers me about this is obviously Lonigan has people out looking for right. Hooker and these people essentially found him. Right. Yes. So don't a bunch of them know what he looks like? All of them know what he looks like except Lonigan. So, but going into like his cabin to play this game and like in the car with all these other lackeys, like you would think that one of these guys would know him. The problem is the people that he sent after him aren't are, aren't on the train are looking for Hooker. They have pictures of Hooker and they're looking for Hooker. Lonigan's not even looking at the information. Yeah. Like he doesn't care what Hooker looks like. But I like. just think that that's like a huge liability. For that, sure. Oh, yeah. That, and, and you would think that all of these guys that are in on this big con wouldn't want that liability. Yeah. You would think that he's spending the whole movie in fear that Lonigan's going to figure out who he is. But- well, I feel like he seems to, like, throw caution to the wind with a lot of these things. But you would think that everybody else that knows how to play these cons would be like, let's keep this guy away from He hasn't from told it. anybody else, though. But they know that their buddy got killed and that they were together on this, uh, Yeah, all, you know, all they know is that their buddy got killed for supposedly intercepting Lonigan's money. They don't know that Hooker was involved. They, they don't know don't? that Hooker's being hunted by people. Well, I thought that they knew that Hooker was involved with... with the, the I mean, Kid Erie knows because he was a part of it. I, I, I feel like they know. So, so the two guys who are after Hooker, they they know who he is. They work for Lonigan, but there's a there's a break breakdown in the chain of information because these guys are out looking for Hooker. Yeah. They don't. They're not reporting back to Lonigan until they find him. And there's never there's these guys are never going to be with Lonigan but at the same time as Hooker would be. At, at the very least, Gandorf knows. Because he says, you got to keep an eye out for these guys. If, right. if they show up, you need to tell me. Right. Yes. So but he, they he know. claims that he lost them already yeah, and that they're like, not still following He's him. not an idiot. Like he know, and, and, and Gandorf even says that the, earlier in the film, he says Gondorf. like. Gon- Gondorf. What did Gondorf. I call him? You said Gandorf. <laughs> Gondorf. Gondorf even knows that like they're following him because when he's like, were you followed? And he said, no, no. I don't and think like, so. Well, and he's like, you know. well, you'll never know. Right. Like you won't see him. So like, he, Oh, then why'd you fucking ask me? <laughs> yeah. Well, fair. But like, why does he take him as the second in this? I mean, I know that they do it for the movie purposes right. so mm-hmm. that he's the main character of this movie, but it doesn't make sense to me why skilled con artists 
would take this risk. Yeah. Why Why would they let Hooker be a part of it when it's like, yeah. when he's sitting around the table and he says, how about I let the wanted man be my partner on the inside? And it's like, oh, maybe we do one of the other guys are on this table. Yeah. The next morning, Hooker strolls into the wire shop and pretends there was no difficulty at all sorting things out. He doesn't mention that Riley and Cole tried to shoot him down last night. Another title card reads, The Tale. Lonigan pops in for his monthly visit to the numbers racket, and Riley is here alone to answer for the failed assassination attempt last night. What does Cole say about that? Well, I don't know. He took it hard. Get out of here, Riley. <laughs> what like, a weird line of dialogue. I like I like that he took it hard. Like, like he really gets upset when they get away. Yeah. What happened to Cole? Is he dead? Shouldn't there be two people in this scene? Nah, one of them felt bad. <laughs> Either way, Lonigan takes Riley and Cole off the case and puts Selino on it. Combs doesn't understand why this case requires all their best people. Combs isn't worried enough that Floyd is going around the office closing all the blinds around the increasingly angry Lonigan. Like, I thought for sure they were about to kill Combs here. Yeah. Apparently, Cole is just taking the failure personally, so he refuses to come in and risk being taken off the case. But Lonigan says Selino won't take kindly to competition, so he better get out of the way. We see Erie and another man applying a fake beard sitting at a table in the wire shop. The man with the makeup offers some to Erie so that he might disguise himself a little better. In the back office, we see Gondorf in a tuxedo overseeing everything. Hooker waits at the drugstore where he arranged to meet Lonigan and one of his quieter assistants, credited only as bodyguard, enters. The interior of this room was also used in Back to the Future when Marty meets his father in the 50s. Oh. So when you see the bars on the left side mm-hmm, as he's sitting mm-hmm. at the tables in the back. He's like right where the uh, arcades are. Milk, chocolate, it just slides instantly into his hand. Lonigan is suddenly here in the booth behind Hooker, and Hooker talks him through the operation. Hooker tells Lonigan that this phone will ring, and he'll be given a horse name. He has a couple minutes tops to place a $2,000 bet across the street at the wire shop. Hooker gives them the money to place the bet with. It took Kelly a year to save up. Lonigan stares out the front windows of the drugstore waiting for the call, and Kid Twist watches him from upstairs windows across the street. Twist answers a ringing phone and then places a call to Klein's pharmacy. Yeah. Blown out to win in the fourth race at Narragansett. Lonigan takes the tip across the street and takes a moment to drink in the rum. Everyone is dressed in tuxedos, and there are cigarette girls handing out drinks. The voice of JJ on the intercom announces Blue Note, as seven to one odds in the upcoming third race at Lincoln Fields. I can't tell if it's a mistake that he said last call for betting on the third race because the voice on the phone and Lonigan's bet are both for the fourth race. And they wouldn't run Blue Note two races in a row, I wouldn't think. Gondorf can see that he's buying the room hook, line, and sinker and moves to confront Lonigan in person. I think you get tired of losing, Harrigan. Then the race kicks off. Blue Note is trailing. Lonigan hears Blue Note bringing up the rear, but Hooker gives him a confident nod. Eventually, as Hooker suggested, Blue Note takes the lead by a nose, and Gondorf follows Lonigan to the window to collect his winnings. Gondorf, as Shaw, feigns anger at having lost money to Lonigan here, and orders Kelly to throw the men out. Run those bums out of here. Uh, Mr. Shaw, could I... Don't give me any of your lip, kid. I run them out of here. Kelly tries to apologize, but the men leave of their own volition. As soon as Lonigan and his men are out of earshot, hopefully, yeah. everyone breaks into laughter about the successful tale, and Billy ducks into the back room to tell JJ he can pause in his broadcast. Across town, we see Hooker stepping into an elevator with a bellboy on the way up to Lonigan's place. He greets the kid with a, what do you say, pal? 
which is basically an old-fashioned way of how's it going, and I'm going to single-handedly bring it back into style. <laughs> At the front door of Lonigan's office, Hooker refers to Floyd and Bodyguard as Mutt and Jeff, as a reference to Mutt and Jeff, a popular comic strip of the time. Mutt and Jeff has subsequently become a sort of shorthand for good cop, bad cop routines. Lonigan thinks Hooker just got lucky today, but Hooker explains he can do it every time, and next week he'll put 400000 down on a race to take $2 million home. 20% is Lonigan's share if he's interested. Lonigan wants to know how it works and guesses that he is past posting. Hooker won't commit to an answer until Lonigan joins his team, but Lonigan says he won't join until he knows how it works, and Kelly admits, yeah, he's past posting. Kelly claims to have a friend on the inside at Western Union who intentionally delays the race results as they are broadcast to the bookies so that he can get a bet in on a race before it is even announced. Lonigan gifts Hooker his winnings from today's bet, and it's light. The $2,000 bet won him 16, but he only got 1,000 back. Lonigan points out that 16 grand minus the 15 they stole equals 1,000, but they'll place another bet tomorrow, and Kelly can have a fair share then. Kelly says he'll have to run this change of plans by his friend at Western Union, and Lonigan says they can go see him together. We see Redford walking down a sidewalk outside and zoom into a car parked nearby and a driver with leather gloves. We iris out on the glove to indicate that this person might be tailing Hooker, and more specifically, this might be Lonigan's assassin. Or maybe it's Cole. I don't know. Aren't they both? <laughs> Lonigan's yeah, assassin. That's true. Hooker calls Twist to explain that they need a fake Western Union office stat, and Twist says he'll figure it out. The phone call is punctuated by Snyder bashing his gun through the window of the phone booth. I can't tell if he fires it or if he just violently breaks the window. I, I think he it. just smashes it through. Yeah. But this is like the most brilliant move of Robert Rifford to just close his arm in the scissoring door. Yeah. It's like, oh, God, that's even worse. And he also knocks the gun out of his hand in the process. Hooker shoves him back with the door and knocks him to the ground. He runs across the street full speed and Snyder follows him in a car. Hooker ducks into a train station and hops the turnstile, much to the chagrin of a grumpy line of commuters. He runs across the station platform and then doubles back on the awning to cross back over Snyder as he's catching up with him. He jumps a fence onto the roof of a neighboring building, and Snyder can't keep up with him at this point. We get a fun little ragtime bit to send us back to 20s comedies with silent film actors cleverly outrunning the police. Eventually, Snyder gives up the chase and just shouts after Hooker as he runs full speed away. We iris out to the bar at Gondorf's wire shop, and Hooker has finally told Gondorf about Snyder and his tail. Because he can't hide it anymore because he's got a big scar on his face. Because when Snyder punched in that window, it slashed open his cheek. You can't play your friends like Mark's Hooker. Hooker insists that Snyder is nothing to worry about since they only need a couple more days to spring the trap on Lonigan, and then they're out of town. Our next title card reads The Wire. Hooker stops into a corner diner and asks about a blue plate special, which was a nickname for the cheapest meal on the menu, whatever they were trying to get rid of that day. Apparently Redford broke his thumb skiing, so when we see him eating this meal, he doesn't use his thumb to hold the fork, and it looks very weird. Guess I should have had the meatloaf. It isn't any better. As he pays for the meal later, Hooker asks where the usual girl June is, and the waitress Loretta tells him that she quit, and she is eager to follow her out of this place. We'll have to come back to this line later. We cut to Kid Twist and J.J. Singleton dressed as painters. They wander into a Western Union office and ask for a specific room that they're here to paint. Hooker climbs into Lonigan's car outside and is mashed again between Floyd and Lonigan in the back seat. Lonigan asks about the scar from Snyder busting into Hooker's phone booth, and Kelly says, oh, I got punched in a fight. Lonigan's car- Well, not just punched in a fight. 
He He, says the guy had a ring and it cut him in the face. No, the girl had a ring. Oh, did he say that? Yeah, because then Lonigan comes back and he's like, my guys don't mess with ladies. Like, you got to lay off the skirts because this is serious work. Mm -hmm. Oh, I thought he was saying... That he got in a fight and he's like, my, my guy's no, like no, no. He, he had a scuffle with a, a prostitute, I believe. Ah. Lonigan's car, a 1935 Pierce Arrow limousine, is by far the most gorgeous vehicle in the film and apparently belonged to co-producer Tony Bill, who also wrangled most of the other era-appropriate vehicles. The fake painters take over the Western Union office and advise the employee, Mr. Harmon, to leave so they can get their work done as quickly as possible. One or two hours tops. Harmon asks why he can't just stay here while they work. Look, pal, we got to cover the floor, the furniture, everything, so we don't spill on nothing. Now, if you want to sit in here with a tarp over your head, you're welcome to it. Once he's gone, the fake painters remove their coveralls and they're back in suits by the time Lonigan shows up. For added detail, Kid Twist even places a framed photograph of his family on the employee's desk. The wife in the photo is played by actress Kathleen Freeman, who is not featured elsewhere in the film, yeah. but who we always love to see. Kid Twist pretends to be the Western Union contact who is terrified to find Lonigan brought into his place of business. He insists they talk shop elsewhere and pages his secretary that he's leaving early today. Amusingly, he actually broadcasts the message to mm-hmm. the secretary and Harmon is standing at the desk with her. They're both totally perplexed by it. Luckily, they don't say anything back. Like, who are you? Aren't you the painter? Lonigan tells Kelly's Western Union friend that they're going to pull off one more test job before the big hit, and Twist pretends to be nervous about it because his office is crawling with inspectors and he can't chance blowing the whole thing. Lonigan decides to blackmail the man with his knowledge of the operation to force his hand. We see Lieutenant Snyder sitting down to a coffee when he is approached by two Phoebes. They invite him to a conference with Special Agent Polk of the FBI. They drive Snyder through the rain to a warehouse, which appears to be the base of operations for a big undercover FBI investigation. Special Agent Polk is being played by Dana Elkar, and he instructs a group of men how best to cover the ground they're surveilling. What is this? I got work to do. Sit down and shut up, will you? Try not to live up to all my expectations. Polk tells Snyder that Hooker and Gondorf are planning a big scam soon. They want Gondorf in prison, but the charges they have won't stick, so they need to catch him in the act here. He asks Snyder to apprehend Hooker to interrupt their plan. Polk accuses the local police of tipping off all these con men and preventing any worthwhile arrests in recent years. For that reason, he says he's keeping the local police in the dark, with the exception of Snyder. He tells Snyder that if he goes along with the plan and it doesn't get broken up, that he'll get paid cash not to cooperate with the scammers. I don't know why of everyone you would only let in Snyder when Snyder is a well-known dirty cop who's in the pocket of Lonigan. Well, I think that that's, I think one of the reasons that they are willing to offer him money yeah. is because like, we know you'll do anything for money. But then why, why are you keeping it a secret from the police and then telling one of the police who is like for sure one of the crooked ones? Well, because he needs hooker and, and Snyder knows hooker. Okay. And he's, and he's crooked enough that he's like, we can pay you and you'll do yeah, what we say. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They seem to think once they have Hooker in custody that he'll turn on his mentor Gondorf. We get another title card that reads, The Shutout. We cut back to the wire shop springing into action as Lonigan arrives at the joint. They're looking for a race with shorter odds because Kid Twist said Gondorf will catch wise if too many long shots are scoring big. They decide 4-1 to odds is acceptable as a maximum. Eddie Niles tells Gondorf they can't pay out the prize money on a 4-1 to horse with the wager Lonigan is suggesting, so the man at the window promises to run a shutout, and we'll learn what that means in a moment. They find a horse named Wrecking Crew taking third on 3-1 to odds. 
Do you guys recall the last time we saw a wrecking crew beat the odds? I'm trying to think of anything we've watched with horse racing. It wasn't a horse race. Uh, I'm going to guess uh, Empire Strikes Back? No. Never tell me the odds. Nope, it's not that one. Um, is it the wrestling one? Not the wrestling one. Oh, I thought maybe one of those was So the Crew is the last name of the character, but his nickname was Wrecking Crew. Uh, was it in Cannonball Run? Nope. But it did have that actor in it. That actor from Cannonball Run. Uh, the lead actor of Cannonball Run. Gator. I don't know. Well, I don't think we covered Gator. Oh, what, what was the White, one? White, White Lightning? Lightning? It's not White Lightning either. Okay. I don't, does this tell us? Longest Yard. Oh. His name was Crew. And his nickname oh. was Wrecking Crew when okay. he was in the NFL. Lonigan takes the call again with the horse names for today's bet. Yeah. In the sixth race at Belmont, wrecking crew to win, black mischief to place, which way to show. When Lonigan gets in line to bet, the people in front of him intentionally take just long enough that he can't place his money on the race, which is what they meant by shutout. Just as the caller suggested, wrecking crew took the lead with black mischief in second and which away in third. Eerie kid heckles Lonigan for missing the window. Should have had your money on Wrecking Crew. <laughs> it's like I hope this guy just does this all day. Yeah. Here. Hey everybody, you all lost except that guy. He won when someone wins. Lonigan is furious to miss out on a score and demands another chance tomorrow on a minimum four to one odds race. Hooker enjoys another late night meal at his usual diner and asks the same waitress when she gets off tonight. 2 a.m. Out the window, Hooker spots a man in shadow, clearly watching his every move. Hooker organizes an escape plan with the waitress. He tells her that the man outside will kill him if she doesn't do what he says. He needs her to go to the bathroom, open the window, and wait. Then he rushes away. Hooker steps outside to draw the man's attention and then runs back through the diner to the back room and then into the ladies' room into the waitress's stall. I don't know why he had her open the window. I guess so to that it wouldn't be so that, stuffy. No, to convince the guy that he... That she was taking a shit. <laughs> that he escaped out the window. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> I don't believe you're taking a shit. The window's closed. <laughs> <laughs> the man with a gun follows him into the ladies' room and stops when he sees her legs under the door. It's taken. The plan would have worked fine, but Hooker leaves again way too early, and the gunman spots him leaving the place. The chase resumes, and Hooker finds himself dead-ended in a back alley. When the gunman catches up with him, the alley is empty. And when he turns around, he recognizes someone who he addresses as Salino. Salino. Hey, I wasn't... So I guess this is Cole getting shot by Salino. Right. Or Riley. No, Riley was John Quaid. Oh, okay. Yeah. The man collapses dead, and the camera tilts down on a manhole cover slightly off-kilter, suggesting that Hooker escaped through Turtle Town, which is what I will now call the sewers. Hooker is barely home for a second before he finds himself at the barrel end of yet another gun. Snyder's been waiting for him here and drags him to Special Agent Polk as requested. Polk asks what Hooker knows about Gondorf, and he's understandably tight-lipped. Snyder mentions an actionable charge of counterfeiting, and Polk threatens him with 20 years of federal prison if he doesn't roll over on his partner in the upcoming job. I'll make parole. Like hell. You won't even get a review. I'll chance it. Because Hooker is no stranger to risking his life, Polk has to sweeten the pot and threaten to bring charges against Luther's widow, Alva, who apparently has her own grifting history to be held accountable for. Polk says he'll get Gondorf either way, he's just making the offer out of the kindness of his heart. 
Hooker agrees on the condition they don't interrupt the con. Let them score on their mark, and then Gondorf is theirs. We cut back to Gondorf's room at the merry-go-round. He notices how quiet Hooker's been and wonders what's wrong. Billy pops in, asking if she can let her prostitutes ride the merry-go-round, <laughs> since there aren't many Johns around tonight. <laughs> They're playing cribbage here, which I would have guessed is basically like blackjack, but counting to 31 instead of 21. Turns out I'm way wrong, and it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. Who'd have thunk it? But you do uh, play with a little pegboard. Yeah. Like they have at the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> right? It's a different game. It's the same thing? I, I, no. I, I Is there a game at the Cracker Barrel? Yeah, they have chicken the- fried steak and uh, gravy. Oh, okay. the, the triangle with the golf tees on it where you're trying to eliminate oh, okay, the down yeah. to one. Yeah. And it tells you what your IQ is, right? Yeah. Before they part ways, Gondorf mentions he's been in this line of work for 30 years with nothing to show for it. Then why are you doing it? it seems worthwhile, doesn't it? Around 2 a.m., Hooker spots the waitress leaving the diner. He watches her enter a building and sees a light come on. After a moment, he knocks on her door and invites her out for a drink. It's fucking 2 a.m., dude. <laughs> Last call. We're done. Go to bed. She puts up a weird fight considering this is Robert Redford, but eventually she lets him in. Back at Gondorf's place, he's in bed with Eileen, wondering about the upcoming grift. And by Eileen, I mean the Billy character, Eileen Brennan. We see Hooker beside the waitress, similarly sleepless. The next title card is the titular one, The Sting. Hooker wakes up, seemingly late for the grift, and the waitress's apartment is weirdly empty, but his money is still here in his wallet. At first, I assumed... She left town like she kept saying she was going to. Mm-hmm. She just needed one good fuck, and then she's out of here. We see the same black leather gloves from before pull a box out of a drawer and then put a revolver together. In Lonigan's office, a bank officer delivers a briefcase full of cash. Before the con, Hooker phones Polk. He tells Polk the door will be manned, but there are no guns on the premises. As Hooker walks the alley to the job, the gloved man hides around a corner with a gun. Sorry. Uh, it's important to note that as he's calling Polk, uh, Snyder is listening in to the call. Right. That's important. Yeah. As Hooker walks the alley to the job, the gloved man hides around a corner with a gun. Hooker spots the waitress returning to the apartment, and just before they meet, the gunman fires over Hooker's shoulder and hits the woman square in the forehead. Oh, yeah. man. Such an awesome, unexpected shot at this point in the movie. My niece was livid. She's like, what? No. Yeah, it's insane. And, yeah, and then. Yeah, I mean, it's it's super dark, but it's also so unexpected is what, it's what makes it such a great moment. The gunman rolls the girl over to reveal another silenced revolver in her hand. She was going to kill you, kid. Her name is Loretta Salino. Lonigan's people set her up in the diner. Come on. So now this brings me back to my other question. Mm-hmm. Did June quit? <laughs> mm, I don't know about that. It's a good thing he didn't order the meatloaf. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, uh, I, it's, a, it's just like Jeff Goldblum is like, I pardon you f- from life. <laughs> <laughs> he touches him with the wand and he just starts melting. So, okay. So when she was done taking her dump, she also goes out the window, yeah. <laughs> chases him down and kills Cole. Yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Because Cole is muscling in on her. They, they had mentioned that. Selena doesn't like people muscling in on their... They, they're very clever to avoid pronouns. Yeah. All, all yeah. the dialogue is constructed yeah. to be pronouns. And Selena is intentionally like, makes it sound like some Italian guy's last mm-hmm. name, not like Loretta. Oh, you're putting Loretta on the case. Yeah. Well, shit, that's all you had to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's her belt fiction. But it's funny too, because earlier when I said, we see the black gloves of 
the assassin. Maybe it's Selino or maybe it's Cole. And it turns out it was neither of them because <laughs> it's the guy that yeah. Gondorf put on the case right. to keep to protect him from either of those two assassins. So it feels like he knew that Hooker was not telling right. the whole truth about yep. people chasing him the and whole finding time. him. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe we don't see the gloves until after he confesses to Gondorf that he's in trouble with Snyder. Mm. Hooker doesn't understand why she kept him alive all night, but the gunman claims that too many people saw him go to her place. There was nobody out there. What are you talking about? There's an old lady across the street. But, I mean, I feel like Selena would have just killed the old lady, too. Just more meatloaf for me. Polk and Snyder hop into a car together, and Polk mentions that some New York big shot is mixed up in today's job. Snyder is enlisted to get Lonigan out of the joint as quickly as possible to avoid getting tangled up in the press coverage of this bust. Gondorf looks worried when he sees the gunman shuffle into the wire shop, but is relieved to see Hooker follow him in. An alarm sounds and everybody gets in character. JJ finds a horse for today's scam and Lonigan is in the booth for it. Yeah. Place it on Lucky Dan, third race at Riverside Park. Lonigan crosses to the betting window and drops a $500,000 briefcase on Lucky Dan to win. The teller needs Gondorf's approval to take the bet. Gondorf says that he couldn't cover the winnings, and Hooker puts on a worried face as if the scam is about to dissolve. Not only are you a cheat, you're a gutless cheat as well. What are the odds? Four to one. Take all of it. The race is off, and Kid Twist walks in to supervise the rigged bet. I put it all on Lucky Dan. Half a million dollars to win. Please. 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 That horse is going to run second. Shaw's eyes go wide. He flies across the room and tears at the cage around the bankers, demanding his money back. Right on cue, Polk kicks in the door with Snyder in tow. Polk approaches Gondorf and informs him that their chase is over before excusing Hooker to leave. As Hooker moves for the door, Gondorf pulls out a gun and shoots him in the back. And then Polk returns fire, hitting Gondorf in the guts. Polk shouts to Snyder to get Lonigan out of here, but Lonigan is in shock about what he's just seen. Outside, he demands to be let back in. Mm. Come on! There's a couple of dead guys in there, too. You can't get mixed up in that. A half a million dollars in 1936 is the equivalent of about $11 million (sighs) cash today. Back in the room, Polk rolls over Hooker and a smile creeps across his face. Gondorf is invited to sit up as well, and it's clear we've all been swindled. Polk, it turns out, is not a fed, but a friend of Gondorf's, and what we thought was one room full of people playing along was actually two rooms full of people playing along, because all the feds in that warehouse were also in on it from the start. So everybody but Snyder, because Snyder's Snyder's being conned conned as well. Yes. Yeah. So they, because Snyder also had a beef with Hooker and also needed to believe Hooker was dead. Right. Right. Otherwise, he would continue to seek him out. Right. Gondorf asks Hooker how revenge tastes. You're right. It's not enough. (laughs) It's close. (laughs) They all set to work breaking down the fake murder scene, and presumably Lonigan has them all killed within the week. (laughs) Well, they got to get out of there. Yeah. Yeah, They got to take this money and be nowhere in this country anymore. But he said earlier in the movie, you can make this big hit on this guy. You can take all of his money, but he either can't know that you took it, or he has to think you're dead at the end of it. Mm. And 
he won't think that they're dead and he knows they took it. Why will he not think they're dead? Because he'll know the whole thing was a fake when it's not in the papers tomorrow. When all of these people that were in this room are just walking around playing different characters in his city the next day. Well, I mean, you could argue, you could make the argument that it was a federal case that was covered covered it all up. They covered up, you know, the murder of a, you know, wouldn't Snyder know when the bodies aren't delivered anywhere and and there's literally nobody is is called to this double murder situation. Well, presumably Snyder is actually getting a cut of this on the other end. He po- thinks he is, but he's not going to get any money. I, I don't I think that he would. I th- I think You think he's going to get 1 250th of this money and be happy with that amount? I, I think that that in order for the con to be to be fulfilled, Polk has to honor his his agreement and he has to get Snyder money. Yeah. Otherwise he'll be looking for Polk. But it just seems like the the whole plan, like if he said, get him out of here before the press shows up, and the press is never called, the press mm. never show up, there was no reason to rush Lonigan out of the place. He lost a half a million dollars for no reason because he should have just gotten him his 500000 and then left. Yeah, I think you're right. He would be suspicious that there's no there's no mention of mention. it whatsoever. He doesn't even hear about what happened to this half million dollars. He's just like, oh, the government took it, fucking government. I mean... <laughs> Really, you just got to divide it up and everyone's got to leave the country. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, because they already had their bags packed. Uh, and I think they're probably splitting this evenly among everyone involved yeah. in the process. It's after still expenses. plenty of money. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, even if you had 30 people. I think they had like closer to 100 because there's like 50 guys in this room at mm. any point. And then there's all the people at the FBI building. And then. Yeah. Furniture guy got a flat rate. Right. It's fine. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Furniture that's true. Flat. And, and he's probably, they're probably getting some deposit back on the return of the goods. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They should also just leave it in place and rip off more people. Uh, just keep using it as a I, wire shop. I yeah. don't think you want to be there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they say you took it over from the last guy. Yeah. Um, I do also like that the last uh, drawing is of them cleaning up. Right, yeah. Hooker packs up to leave knowing full well that he will waste his share of the loot. He sends another nose touch signal to Eerie Kid and then turns to follow Gondorf out. As the two men move down the alley, the picture Iris is down on them, and we fade to another lovely illustration depicting the disassembly of the wire shop as the credits roll. The end. Sequel. No, no. Four years after the events of the first film, in actuality ten years later, a mutual friend of Hooker and Gondorf is killed. So they team up to avenge their friend with a big score. They set up a sure thing gambling scam and rope in the rich guy they hold responsible for their friend's death. Does any of this sound familiar so far? But the rich guy wants more proof that their scam works. So they have to hijack a building and pretend to be the people who are normally in that building to sell the guy on the scam. In the background, a policeman is constantly on hooker's trail trying to bring him in. The biggest difference is that in this film, it includes a love interest for Hooker, who is ultimately revealed to be working for Lonigan all along. <laughs> oh, wait, that happens in both films. But this film does introduce a double flim-flam because Gondorf hired her to get hired by Lonigan mm. to woo Hooker. So it's like a three-way triple agent situation. Does, but does, So Hooker doesn't know. Yeah. It's like Ward just did a find and replace on horse racing and changed it to boxing, and then Western Union becomes a boxing gym, and then it's just the exact same movie over again. The only legitimate change is that the sequel doesn't involve even the semblance of an FBI investigation. There's no other party involved in breaking up the the sting at the end. And the friend who dies at the start is named Kid Colors, which I'm guessing is a renamed Kid Twist, 
but they didn't want it to be so sad, like the continuity of, oh, <laughs> Kid Twist died four years later? Mm. <laughs> that sucks. And why would he start with all the, like, extra lower level people if he was going to get revenge on everyone? Like, the first scene is literally Oliver Reed corners Kid Twist and shoots him to death. <laughs> it's like, that's not how this character does things. He would have hired people to do it. Yeah. But yeah, that's the second movie. It's it's garbage. It's really bad. But uh, but this movie is really great. I love it a lot. And I think some of the twists you see coming and some of them you don't. Um, and I like that. Yeah. Uh, it's not the first time I've seen it. I think we all watched it together previously. I don't know if no? we did. Did we not? No. Uh, I mean, I thought it was one of our picks for our movie nights. Anyways, it's uh, it's good. It's a well-made movie. Uh, yeah. I really Paul like... Newman is just so dreamy well, all the time. Well, yeah. <laughs> these blue-eyed babes in here, and you're just like, I just like looking at you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've seen this movie many times. So yeah. it, it uh, going into it, I was just like, yeah, I just... Uh, but that's why I was... That's why I, I'm going to watch it with my niece. She's never right. seen it. Um, Change the experience a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So so she had some reactions. Um, overall, she was she thought it was okay. Yeah. Um, she thinks she just thought it was a little slow. Um, you know, it's a two hour plus movie. Yeah. I don't think uh, it has to be that long really. Yeah. Um, it, it, I feel like, I feel like it moves along, but, uh, she thought it was a little slow and I get it. Um, but, uh, overall though, she thought it, she liked it. So, yeah. I don't, I don't I like it. I don't have any problem with the pacing. My, my biggest issue is really that they act like they wrapped it all up in a pretty bow at the end. And no. it's still very sloppy yeah. what happened. And it's like, there's no way that this doesn't backfire on any of these people. And if we learn four years later that they're all still in town, like, except for Gondorf left, but but Hooker is still just in town hanging out with mm. his with his winnings. And it's like, he never found you again? <laughs> Wouldn't he be really mad and constantly looking for you? So, so you'd prefer like a, an Ocean's Eleven type ending where he knows that they did it, but he can't prove it? Or that he dies. <laughs> Lonigan dies? Yeah, if Lonigan dies, then there's no way that he can come back after them for this money. And he dies like by his own hand or by some stupid mistake that he makes, not because of them just shooting him in the face. Because then why did we bother to make a wire shop and hire 600 people? <laughs> it's like could have just shot him in the head. Well, because he needed to get the money. Yeah. You can't get the money from a dead man. But as soon as you get the money, he's like, all right, now the race is off. Bang. And just shoot him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, you can't just shoot me in this crowded room full of, oh, your, co- your co-conspirators? Shit. Oh, wait. I guess you can then. This is going to be a murder on the Orient Express. Everyone's just going to take a shot at him. Yeah. But yeah, that's the thing. Big thumbs up for, for all three of us, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, thumbs for up. sure. Uh, the director here was George Roy Hill. He previously directed Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Slaughterhouse Five. Later, he helms Great Waldo Pepper with Redford again and Slapshot with Newman again. And next, he's back to direct The World According to Garp. The writer here was David S. Ward. Before this, he'd written only Steel Yard Blues, and he comes back after this with Cannery Row and The Sting 2, and later Major League, King Ralph, and Sleepless in Seattle. Did he actually write Sting 2, or is it based on No, he wrote by... The Sting oh, 2, okay. which I don't know if that just means they reused the script <laughs> and changed a few words, <laughs> right. and they had to credit him, but um, because he's written good stuff. Like Cannery Row, Major League, Sleepless in Seattle, Like these are not mm-hmm. half-assed scripts. So the fact that The Sting 2 is so bad makes me think, he didn't give a shit about it. He was just doing it for paycheck while he was writing something else. The cinematographer here is Robert Surtees. He previously lit Ben-Hur, Dr. Doolittle, The Graduate, Coogan's Bluff, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, Summer of 42, and The Last Picture Show. After this, he lights Great Waldo Pepper, The Hindenburg, The 76 Star is Born, and we've already discussed his final credit same time next year. The editor was William Reynolds. 
He has credits back to the 30s. He cut The Sound of Music, Hello Dolly, and The Godfather. We saw his work last season for Najinsky and Heaven's Gate, and next season he's back cutting Author, Author, and later he cuts Yellowbeard and Ishtar. So he cut Heaven's Gate, Yellowbeard, and Ishtar, three of the like most notorious failures of all time, after cutting back-to-back Best Picture winners of The Godfather and The mm-hmm. Sting. The music adapter was Marvin Hamlish. He won the Oscar for this score, and that same night, he also won two Oscars for original score and song on The Way We Were, making three wins that night, all for films starring Robert Redford. He also composes Bananas, The Spy Who Loved Me, Starting Over, Seems Like Old Times, Sophie's Choice, and Three Men and a Baby. He was also nominated for an Oscar for his title song in the same time next year. Initially, he turned down the offer to compose Joplin soundalikes for a 30s contemporary score, but once he saw a cut of the film, he knew it would be a mistake not to contribute something great to it. This score actually marked a reappraisal of Scott Joplin's work, which I have always been a fan of, so I'm grateful to this film because I might not have heard these songs otherwise. Joplin's 1902 song, The Entertainer, featured multiple times in the film, even clawed its way onto the Billboard chart in 1974, 72 years after it was written. I actually came to Joplin's work by way of Koji Kondo. Koji Kondo considered Joplin to be a major inspiration for his music. Kondo, if you're not familiar, is responsible for all your favorite early Mario and Zelda games. Mario, and in particular Mario 2, has a very clear ragtime heart to the music. Oh yeah. Producer Julia Phillips, with this film she became the first woman nominated for Best Picture and the first to win. She later produces Taxi Driver, Close Encounters, and Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. The costumes here were from Edith Head, probably the most famous costume designer of all time, parodied by the character of Edna Mode in The Incredibles. For her work on The Sting, she won her eighth and final Oscar out of 35 nominations for costume design after The Heiress, All About Eve, Samson and Delilah, A Place in the Sun, Roman Holiday, Sabrina, and The Facts of Life. Those were her wins. Her last unrewarded nomination was for Airport 77, which we covered for a custom review this season. She also went unnominated for her work on The Birds, which we also covered with a custom review in season two. Paul Newman played Henry Gondorf. He's Cool Hand Luke and Cool Hand Luke. He's HUD and HUD, Butch Cassidy in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He's the hustler in The Hustler. We've seen him so far as oil worker Hank Anderson in When Time Ran Out, and then as Murphy in Fort Apache the Bronx, and more recently in Absence of Malice. He's back next season in The Verdict. He has best Oscar noms for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Hustler, HUD, Cool Hand Luke, and Rachel Rachel before this. He has another nomination for The Verdict, and of course a win for The Hustler sequel, Color of Money. He also has more recent nominations for Nobody's Fool and Road to Perdition. Oh yeah, he was great in Road to Perdition. Yeah. That, well, was, also, that was his last movie, right? Or um, the unless the Cars, maybe. Oh yeah, car, he did the voice for Cars. Uh, but uh, I love him uh, in Hudsucker Proxy as Musburger. Oh yeah, Robert Redford played Johnny Hooker. The character was meant to be 19 in the first draft of the story because it was supposed to be like a kid and a guy that was like aging out of the job that were working together, mm-hmm. but they slowly came closer and closer together in age. Amazingly, this is the only acting nomination Redford ever received. He has claimed that he didn't actually watch the film until June of 2004, which I don't even believe. Like, people say that all the time where actors are like, oh, you know, I never even watched that movie. And it's like, the only one you were ever nominated for an Oscar for? Mm -hmm. I don't believe you. Good day to you both. (laughs) What? To you both? What are you talking about? Before this, he was in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Hot Rock, and Jeremiah Johnson. After this, he did The Great Gatsby, All the President's Men, and so far on the show, Brubaker, and Behind the Camera for 1980, Best Picture, Ordinary People, and a custom review of Three Days of the Condor. 
Later, he's in The Natural, Out of Africa, The Horse Whisperer, and more recently, he's shown up in the MCU as Alexander Pierce. Robert Shaw was Doyle Lonigan. Before this, he was in From Russia with Love, with a lot of other really great train scenes. Uh, he was He's in A Man for All Seasons, A Town Called Hell, and The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, and producers David Brown and Richard Zanuck suggested him for Quint in Jaws after forging a good working relationship with him on this film. Later, he shows up in Robin and Marion, Black Sunday, and The Deep. Charles Durning was Lieutenant William Snyder. Later, he's in Dog Day Afternoon and The Hindenburg. We've seen him so far in The Fury, Die Laughing, The Final Countdown, True Confessions, and Sharky's Machine. I love him in Sharky's Machine. He's so loud and crazy in yeah. that movie. I didn't get to see it. <laughs> what, is, what does he say? He's like, who fucking cares? Or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Just barks right in his face. After this, he shows up as the governor in The Best Little Whorehouse, and then Tootsie, Scarface, Dick Tracy, the Hudsucker Proxy, with Newman again, IQ, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And Jess usually brings up Doc Hopper from the Muppet movie. Always. Ray Walston played J.J. Singleton. He was Luther Billis in South Pacific, Mr. Applegate in Damn Yankees, Joe Dobish in The Apartment, Mad Jack Duncan in Paint Your Wagon, and we've seen him so far as Poop Deck Pappy in Altman's Popeye, and then Kor in Galaxy of Terror. Next season, he's Mr. Hand in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and later, the newspaper vendor who keeps getting blinded and deafened in Johnny Dangerously. <laughs> he also played a character named Armitan, a suspicious anagram of Martian, in the movie My Favorite Martian, which was adapted from his own television show, in which he played the titular Favorite Martian. He also played Boothby on Star Trek The Next Generation. There you go. Another Martian. Bo- both the real Boothby in TNG and then the fake Boothby in Voyager the hell eileen brennan played billy she was genevieve in the last picture show tess skeffington in murder by death mrs peacock in clue how cool is it that that she was in murder by death and clue yeah that's that's amazing she plays a crazy cat lady in jeepers creepers we saw her last in private benjamin as captain doreen lewis a role which she reprised on the television adaptation in 1982 she was leaving a dinner with goldie hawn in venice california when she was struck by a car and very nearly died her legs were smashed all the bones on the left side of her face were broken. Her left eye socket was shattered. Oh, my God. Obviously, she recovered enough to appear in Clue three years later. She has a son, Patrick Brennan, who will appear next season as Spicoli's younger brother in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And more recently, he was a bartender in Captain Marvel. I just saw Captain Marvel today. Not the movie, but uh, Brie yeah, Larson yeah. was in the elevator with me at work. Harold Gould played Kid Twist. He's Mr. Garrett and Marnie. He's Anton in Love and Death. And he had long runs on Rhoda and the Golden Girls. I guess he was he was Rhoda's father. And on the Golden Girls, he was like a, a love interest mm-hmm. on the show. Um, I also think that he looks a lot like two actors that we've discussed looking alike before. And I'm blanking on one of their names. The guy from Prince of the City that I said looked a lot like Burt Gummer. Okay. But those those two guys and this guy all, all have very similar faces. I, maybe it's just a gray mustache with black hair makes me think of these guys. John Heffernan played Eddie Niles. He was Chester Markham in 18 episodes of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. He also shows up as the stockbroker bum in The Fisher King. Dana Elkar played FBI agent Polk. He was Sheriff Patterson in 35 Dark Shadows. We've covered his work in The Nude Bomb, The Last Flight of Noah's Ark, Condor Man, and Buddy Buddy. He appeared as Judge Carlson in an episode of the Seven Brides for Seven Brothers TV series where he met future co-star Richard Dean Anderson with whom he would team up for 126 episodes of MacGyver, including several episodes that pay heavy homage to The Sting, including Twice Stung and Jenny's Chance. Jenny's Chance, which, by the way, Mm. stars Linda Blair, who we'll be discussing 
tomorrow. Which which one has the the Boston bang and they switch it to the Toledo twist? That's the twice stung yeah. episode. Yeah. That one has all the it does all the irises. It does a lot of the horse racing stuff. Um, good stuff. Jack Kehoe is Erie Kid. We just saw him in Serpico a couple days back. We've seen him on the show now for On the Nickel, Melvin and Howard, and more recently in Reds. Later, he shows up in The Midnight Run, Dick Tracy, and The Game. Demetra Arliss played Loretta. This is only her second role. We've seen her as Sister Teresa in The Other Side of Midnight, and later she shows up in Xanadu. Robert Earl Jones played Luther Coleman. He was Ben in Sleepaway Camp, a custodian and witness, and Harry in Maniac Cop 2. And as you've probably already guessed, he is the father of actor James Earl Jones. I was watching this movie and I was like, why is James Earl Jones look so weird? That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, it's almost his voice, but not It's quite. definitely his voice for sure. Like, yeah. I was like, it was like what, what is wrong? Like, did he just like age differently? He, uh, on the first day on set, James Earl Jones was playing a harmonica and he fell on it. <laughs> and then he sounded like this for the rest of the movie. No, it's his dad. James Sloyan played Matola. We've seen him so far in a couple MacGyvers, and he's also Dr. Mora in a couple Deep Space Nines. You recognize him from that? Dr. Dr. Mora. Mora. Hmm. I guess I'd have to see him in uh, DS9 makeup. Charles Deercop played Floyd. Cool name, Deercop. Reminds me of the show I used to watch called Deer Cop. <laughs> it was a cop that was also a deer. He previously appeared in The Hustler with Newman and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid with both Redford and Newman. He's probably best known for playing the killer Santa in Silent Night, Deadly Night. Sally Kirkland played Crystal. That's the woman with the tassels on her boobs dancing at the burlesque show. She appeared the same year with Robert Redford in The Way We Were. Avon Long played Benny Garfield. He was later Leroy in Harry and Tonto and Ezra in Trading Places. Ed Bakey played Granger. We'll see him again soon as Father Gallagher in Zapped for season three of the podcast. Brad Sullivan played Cole. I didn't realize that was Brad Sullivan. I like Brad Sullivan. Uh, After this, he followed Newman to Slapshot. We've seen him so far on the show for The Island and Ghost Story. Later, he's an executive in The Abyss and Father Thomas in Sister Act 2. John Quaid played Riley. We just saw him yesterday as Masked Breton in Papillon, but I always think of his biker gang leader character, Chola, in Every Which Way But Loose and Any Which Way You Can. Larry D. Mann played the train conductor. He shows up in a few My Favorite Martians with co-star Ray Walston. He also showed up in a couple MacGyvers, specifically The Heist and Humanity. He plays Daniel Sims in The Heist. Oh, you're an accountant, Sims. You figure it out. You're an accountant, Sims. Figure it out. Leonard Barr played burlesque house comedian. Like Shaw, Barr also shows up in a Connery Bond, specifically Diamonds Are Forever, playing yet another comedian named Shady Tree. Oh my God. It's the same guy. I fucking knew it. I heard this guy's like really terrible jokes and deliveries. Like this guy's in a Bond movie yep. as a comedian. Yep. And, and he's, he's got that same like, he's got that countenance. He kind of looks like the Six Flags guy a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think in the Bond movie, he's got, like, two, like, dancing girls on either arm while he's delivering the lines. We saw him last as Pops in Under the Rainbow, a film which I'm pretty sure he died during the production of because that film was dedicated to his memory. He was also a comedian outside of film, famous for his deadpan one-liners, and also for being Dean Martin's uncle. (laughs) That's how old this guy was. (laughs) He was Dean Martin's uncle. Pauline Myers played Alva Coleman. She's Jesse in To Kill a Mockingbird. Later, she appeared in 30 episodes of Days of Our Lives as several characters. Her last credit was as Constance Riley in My Cousin Vinny. Ken Sampson played Western Union executive. 
Most of his credits are for voicing Rabbit in Winnie the Pooh films. We saw him last as the guard at the private beach community that is constantly impersonating celebrities for Marlowe in The Long Goodbye. So I think that's the guy who they're actually kicking out of his office. It's the same guy who's like yeah. doing impressions of Jimmy Stewart and stuff like that. Well, you, you can kind of hear it in his voice. Um, I'm trying to... Oh, for the rabbit part of it? Yeah. Yeah. Jack Burl played a gambler. He's the older brother of Milton Burl. We saw him last in the Poseidon Adventure for his third passenger credit on the show after Elevator Passenger in Little Miss Marker and Ship Passenger in Herbie Goes Bananas. He's also in Bustin' Loose and Stripes. Kathleen Freeman was Kid Twist's wife. She's Sister Mary Stigmata in The Blues Brothers, so she has a thing for movies to start in Joliet. Uh, she's also Mrs. Crackshell on DuckTales, mm-hmm. Microwave Marge in Gremlins 2. We saw her last as Mrs. Jensen in our Patreon review of The Ballad of Cable Hogue. Susan French played Landlady. She played Old Lady in Jaws 2, I think the one that saw the water skier explode. And then last season, she was Old Elise in Somewhere in Time. <laughs> Is that the lady that peeks out of the door? In, in Somewhere in Time? No, in this. Oh, no, oh. the landlady's the one who leads him into the new apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sig Froelich played Gambler. He was Shark Man in Flash Gordon, the original Flash Gordon, and a winged monkey in Wizard of Oz. He's an air traffic controller in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, and he also shows up uncredited in The Way We Were with Robert Redford and Sally Kirkland. We've also seen him so far in Airplane, First Monday in October, and True Confessions. Clark Gordon played Mr. Lombard. He was a drunk in Octagon last season. Frank Green played a gambler. He was the tow truck driver in Midnight Madness. And Jessica Raines played the secretary who Mr. Matola is flirting with and touching against her will in the opening scene mm-hmm. of the film. And she was a bank teller in Honky Tonk Freeway. And then we just saw her as the girl in Woody Allen's reflection in Sleeper. We mentioned there that she is actually the daughter of actor Claude Rains. Speaking of Casablanca, bringing it full circle. Yeah. I think that's everything for The Sting. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us tomorrow when we'll be discussing The Exorcist, which IMDb describes like so. When a young girl is possessed by a mysterious entity, her mother seeks the help of two Catholic priests to save her life. We leave you now with the trailer for The Exorcist. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! One hope, the only hope, the exorcist.